I think that's one of the big challenges is about communication. How do we communicate with each other, not just from a uh, science perspective, but also from a real understanding of what we do? People sometimes they uh, they hear, but they don't listen. They listen, but they don't understand, right? And I, I think that's the root of a lot of the problems that we're facing today. Hello and welcome to The Wardroom, a podcast dedicated to the leadership development of the U.S. Navy's engineering duty officers. I'm your host, Lieutenant Commander Kyle Miller. Today I'm joined by Rear Admiral Juan Nguyen, Deputy Commander for Cyber Engineering, Rear Admiral Select Robert Dodson, Reserve Program Manager for Shipyard Infrastructure Optimization, and Rear Admiral Select Michael Richmond, Commanding Officer for the Naval Reserve Strategic Weapon Engineering Unit. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me in The Wardroom. Okay, uh, so question one for uh, Admiral Select Dodson. Will you describe to us the organization of the EDO Reserve Forces and what capabilities they bring to the fleet? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, right now, the Reserve Force, the Reserve EDO program is in the middle of a realignment. Uh, Chief of Navy Reserve put out the Navy Reserve Fighting Instruction, and you know we are realigning our program to, to meet that intent to be mission-focused. Uh, NAVC's wartime mission is to get mission-capable ready ships to the fight, and then if for some reason they lose their capability to get them back into that fight as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, Keeping this in mind, uh, as we started redesigning our program to support this wartime mission, uh, we identified the critical mission areas where NAVC would be called to do you know, during a conflict, during, during a critical uh, uh, time. And we determined that many of these critical mission areas would best be supported by reservists. Uh, and that's because we can do things like strategic surge, uh, ramping up to help uh, fill in when, when a command goes to 24-7 operations, or if you need forward presence of somebody that's actually in a uniform where you can't send contractors or civilians. Uh, so some of these mission areas will do as a standalone reserve mission, and then others, and, and most of them actually will be in conjunction with our active duty and our civilian partners. Um, so we've, we've allocated our reservists to these different critical mission areas, uh, both EDO and enlisted, and uh, you know, we will be able to, to support these critical mission areas. Uh, we're NAVC's surge capacity. So you know, we bring trained, qualified, integrated personnel into uh, the NAVC Enterprise's concept of operations. When we're not in conflict, uh, let's hope we never end up in conflict, but, but when we're not in conflict, our sailors are going to be training for these critical mission areas that, that we're going to have to satisfy during conflict. Uh, this is going to look a lot like operational support like we've done in the past, um, but it's, it's all because we need to gain familiarity with NAVC operations and operating within these commands. Okay, thank you for that, sir. How would you say reserve EDOs are being used in the fleet today? Well, for the past couple of decades, uh, probably going back to the end of the Cold War, uh, reserve EDOs have been focused on operational support to NAVC. Um, and what I mean by that is that our mission was to provide the most value to headquarters of the field activities. Uh, we were really good at doing things like bringing our civilian skill set in, into these commands or bringing our outside perspective to solve problems. Um, many of our assignments, the things that we worked on were kind of quad two activities, you know, things that were important to the command, but not very urgent. And, you know, what happens over time is that the, the command just doesn't get around to them because they're not urgent. Well, by bringing in a reservist, 
you know, we were able to, to tackle some of those, you know, important assignments that need to be done. Uh, because of our realignment to the Navy Reserve Fighting Instruction, this model's got to change. Uh, I'm very proud of the great work that we did, the operational support that we did over all those years. Uh, we provided to our shipyards, warfare centers, soup ships, PEOs, you know, headquarters, directorates. Uh, but when we did that, we lost our focus on training for what we would need to do during war. So when we surge the fleet forward and ships start getting damaged, nobody's going to be asking the reserve program to come in and solve a non-urgent problem, to build a database, stand up a laboratory, help with a, an early phase acquisition. Uh, we're going to be needed forward, or if we're not forward, at least integrating into field activities so that we can do damage assessment, get systems back online, get the ships back into the fight. Because of this realignment, we're going to have to reduce the support in some very important programs and commands that we've been supporting for years. Uh, this includes acquisition support to the Columbia program, construction management at soup ships, uh, technical evaluation for the shipyard infrastructure optimization program. And don't get me wrong, I mean, these are vital missions for NAVC. They, they, they've got to be done, but it's just not where reservists are going to be you know, going when we surge for a conflict. That's, that's very interesting. I I have uh, struggled in the past when I, you know, I get reservists for figuring out which of these quad two activities, um, you know, to have them tackle. Um, you know, I, I guess in my experience uh, as active duty, I rotate around every three years. It takes me like a year uh, before I feel that I'm really proficient at the job uh, and providing value to the command Uh so I guess in your mind, you know, knowing these reserve EDOs come and uh, they, they're able to serve on active duty for a couple of weeks, how can active duty EDOs best utilize reservists during their active duty time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, because of the years of providing operational support, not focusing on qualifying for the mobilization billets, we really have a lot of ground to make up. Every one of our sailors, officer enlisted alike, are going to have an individual training plan or an ITP that you know tells them the, the required education, the qualification, the experience that they're going to need to perform that mobilization billet that they're in in that, in that three-year period of time that they're in it. Um, you know, the, the commands we support, you know, please help us by making the schools, the classes, the training events available to the reservists. That's the only way that we're going to be able to get in and, 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 and be useful in that mobilization billet. Uh, integrate us into your organization so that we can gain that experience and build the relationships needed to do the job. Um, you know, during war, there's not going to be enough time to, to, to build these relationships. It's going to be chaotic. So we've got to build this trust in peacetime so that we can fight like we train. Uh, reservists must be built into your wartime con ops. You know, we have to know how we're going to integrate into your organization when called up. Uh, this includes operational alignment, things like, you know, knowing what, what the role of each reservist is going to be, having the property author proper authority to do the job, uh, proficiencies with the tools used to get the work done. Uh, but it also includes the administrative measures, the things you might not really think about, just as simple as access to buildings and turnstiles having a computer available and authorization to access networks, uh, having safety gear and PPE available. Um, th those are the types of things that, that we're going to need to do in peacetime so that we're ready to go in a crisis. Right. I think, I think that's very important. My personal experience, uh, most of my personal experience with uh, interacting with reservists was during the Bonhomme Richard uh, response. 
Uh, and I found them to be fantastic assets to have on scene. Um, but we did struggle with those things. Like how do you get them access to where they need access to? How do we get them access to a computer? So those are definitely lessons learned um, from that specific uh, instance, but I think it could be broadly applied um, to, you know, all commands where EDO reservists and, and enlisted reservists would, would be functioning. Hey, if you don't mind, let me drop anchor a little bit on on something that uh, Admiral Select Dotson brought up. And, and this is key, especially as we go forward and work to integrate with our active duty counterparts. And that's this notion of trust. Um, developing that trust between the individual reservist and the command that we will support as we shift into a wartime mission is extremely critical. And a lot of what we are laying out both organizationally and in a training pipeline is to make sure that uh, that trust is strong. And, and when the reservist shows up, uh, it's not a surprise. Uh, they understand our competencies and capabilities. And the mission clarity is there with all folks involved on the reserve and active side. So that's a key piece as uh, Bob and I move forward to enact this change into a mobilization-focused uh, organization is that uh, we have strong trust in what we can do and uh, what we will be able to do when mobilized. I guess to kind of summarize that, it's, um, you know, during peacetime, accomplish the steps of performing, storming, and norming so that once you get to wartime, you're in the performing phase of the uh, sort of team building exercise between the active duty um, and the reservists. Um, so, so I guess going into the the next question I have very relevant to this is uh, in a wartime or battle damage repair scenario, how are reserve EDOs going to be utilized by the fleet? Um, and what gaps are there in the reserve force that need to be developed in order to support these efforts? So as part of the redesign that that we've gotten through, we worked with NAVC headquarters, PEOs, field activities, and the fleet, and we identified and validated you know, 11 critical mission areas that NAVC reservists should support. Uh, and they roll up into to battle damage assessment, battle damage repair, uh, expeditionary repair, which is forward, but not, not at the, the position where a ship took da- uh, battle damage, uh, fleet headquarters repair cell support, uh, towing and heavy lift, uh, clear the pier and shipyard crisis augmentation, technical support, diving operations, uh, soup salve technical augmentation, strategic systems program support, and missile, uh, missile defense agency support. Some of these missions we've been doing for years. Our support with soup salve, uh, particularly with uh, diving, towing, and heavy lift are very mature. Our surge main program has been providing skilled tradespeople to the naval shipyard for 18 years. But some of these mission areas are new for us. We're now going to be supporting regional maintenance centers, both at the RMC itself and, and forward in an expeditionary environment so we can be closer to the fight. We'll also be integrated into fleet repair cells. So during war, as, as joint task force are established and maritime operations centers are stood up, the reserve EDOs are going to provide expert advice to the theater commander and uh, you know, on all the repair vector capabilities that NAVC has to offer. Uh, these officers will be a liaison back to emergency operations centers at NAVC headquarters and at the field activities. To be honest with you, our gaps are significant uh, today. We've, we're, we're focused on gaining those qualifications, the experience, those connections, so that we can be trusted in these roles. Uh, 
we need to close these gaps with urgency. Uh, NAVC as a whole has a lot of gaps in warfighting readiness, but together, NAVC activities and the reservists, you know, we're going to be able to develop the CONOPS, practice our capabilities through exercises, learn lessons, adapt, improve. Uh, we're never going to be able to envision every possible scenario that, that we could be called up to do, no less being ready to actually do every one of those scenarios. But if we do have a solid plan, then we can validate, invest in, train to, and exercise often. We'll be able to flex and meet the challenges when the nation needs us. So, okay. Th- thank you for that, sir. The uh, How does one become a reserve EDO? Is there a, a qualification pipeline? Hey, that's a great question, Kyle. And, and you know, there's a couple couple different paths. One is uh, through the uh, civilian uh, recruiter path. Um, those who are interested can go to uh, any Navy recruiter uh, uh, and discuss uh, reserve options. I'll talk about that a little bit. And then and then uh, then the other path is uh, um, coming off of active duty and into the reserve force. Um you know, again, those are fairly standard uh, uh, pipelines in terms of uh, um, joining joining the Navy. From an engineering duty officer perspective, however, uh, there's some minimum criteria required. Um, let's let, let's take the uh, civilian path uh, as an example. Um, you need to have an undergraduate degree in engineering, um, and and uh, uh, we've got uh, a, a set of requirements on, on your undergrad education. And then you also uh, need to be uh, well on your way to completing a master's degree in engineering. Uh, if you have uh, those uh, requirements set, uh, we, we put you through a few interviews uh, with uh, our reserve engineering duty officers. And then you're, then you're on your way to uh, getting your commission. So there's something known as a direct commission program. Um, so you will come in uh, with those qualifications met and accepted into the program. You'll come in as an ensign. Uh, when you join the Navy Reserve as an ensign, engineering duty officer qualifi- qualification uh, candidate, um, you will go through uh, what we call the EDQP, Engineering Duty Qual Program. Uh, that's a program that walks you through a number of steps um, that set the foundational um, minimum required education to be an EDO in the Navy. And, and that can last uh, upwards of around four years. Uh, at the end of that qualification program, uh, you will have a board and uh, we will test you on your knowledge and uh, we'll have you give us a presentation, a technical presentation, uh, to see if you're able to communicate complex technical uh, topics uh, to an audience that may or may not be familiar with that topic area. And then we'll ask you fundamental questions uh, uh, dealing with uh, the engineer and duty officer mission and uh, what you've learned over the last four years. At which point in time, if you pass that board, you'll become a fully qualified engineering duty officer reservist. Um, so, so the intent here is that that pipeline um, – again, uh, ensures that we can put you in your billet that is uh, identified with a mobilization mission, as Admiral Dodson just discussed, and that you have the foundational knowledge to succeed and provide the Navy what the Navy needs you to do. 
Um, and uh, uh, the intent is that that qualification program mirrors as best we can the active duty qualification. So that when you're in uniform, uh, doing what we need you to do, um, it's transparent as to whether or not you're a, a reservist or, or active duty engineering duty officer. Um, that's really what we strive for is that level of competence so that uh, you can hit the deck plate and uh, do what you need to do. That's great to hear, sir. Yeah, I think that helps uh, going back to what Rear Admiral Select uh, Dodson said about the team building. Um, I think, you know, we're all speaking the same language. You get a reservist EDO in, they speak the same language because they've had the same training that makes the uh, team building a lot easier, especially in a uh, battle damage repair or wartime scenario. Um, so one of the things I was thinking of leading, leading up to this interview is, is the leadership challenge you've, that you face as uh, reserve EDOs during your time moving up the ranks and maybe how your civilian careers help guide you through these challenges. Do you have uh, any insights into that topic? Yeah, you know, yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, um, you know, oftentimes, and I know on the active duty side, um, we have the discussion about work-life balance. Um, and so I want to point out when we ask you that question, what's your work-life balance? There's only one life question in there. We, we all have that. And then there's only one work question in there. Uh, however, uh, one of the big challenges we have both as a drilling reservist and as a leader within the reserve community is that question now becomes, what is your work work life balance? Um, so there's two jobs in there that uh, individuals now have to figure out how to balance uh, with their uh, life priorities. And uh, that creates a unique set of leadership challenges. Um, we we uh, still have a mission to do. We have a mission that uh, is critical to the U.S. Navy, as uh, Admiral Select Dodson has been uh, talking about. Um, so as a leader, how do you maintain um, command climate, name maintain uh, mission effectiveness, uh, maintain mission focus when you only get to have those types of discuss discussions one week in a month and maybe two weeks a year. So that creates a leadership challenge uh, where you need to um, keep that momentum going month to month, knowing that in some instances, you'll only have a two-day touch point. Um, and so you've got to kind of dive into um, all the tool sets that you can. Um, reach out, have discussions in between drill periods uh, from month to month. Uh, utilize um, all the tools that we now have today uh, readily available to us to reach out and talk to your sailors. Um, you know, the, the uh, transition that we've had over the last couple of years to telework and remote work and virtual meetings, um, that is something we have lived in the reserve community for a number of years. Um, rarely is the entire unit in one location. Um, in most instances, we are geographically dispersed. So we had to do all that administrative work remotely, fitness reports, counseling, training, things of that nature. We had to figure out how to do that. 
and and uh, get it accomplished uh, when we would rarely see each other face to face. And in some instances, we would only see each other twice a year. Um, so the tools we have today uh, have helped that problem a lot. So think about uh, leadership challenges with that. Um, you have to reach out and uh, talk to your sailors and talk to your officers you're in charge of on a more frequent basis. Uh, you need to figure out how to virtually have those hallway conversations that are oftentimes extremely valuable that start off with, hey, how are the kids? How's the family? And then end up with, hey, what do you think we need to do about this problem? Um, those are easy to have when you see folks every day. Um, however, when it only happens uh, once a month and, tw- and two weeks a year, uh, that becomes a challenge. Um, you know, the, the other piece of this, though, is we get to bring the best and brightest ideas from our civilian career into the reserve mix. Um, what, what I think is really neat about the reserve community is uh, you will have an individual in uniform on the weekend uh, as a lieutenant, but as a civilian, they're an executive vice president at their company. And that company might be uh, DOD related, but it might not be. And you can ask questions and, and get a completely different perspective of how to solve a problem when that reservist brings to bear all the experiences they have out on the civilian world in addition to their military training. So you go go to this notion of diversity and how strong diversity is in being able to effectively solve problems. Um, the reserve force has that extra layer of diverse perspective, diverse experience, uh, diverse background, um, and diverse expertise uh, because they have these two careers. Uh, so that that uh, that really helps out tremendously. And and going back to some of our discussions about how the our active duty counterparts can can leverage our experience, uh, I think that's a message that we need to communicate more frequently is that uh, um, we have a vast talent pool that not only is fully trained to be an engineering duty officer, uh, they bring to bear uh, a tremendous level of insight uh, that can be applied to a problem in a very different manner than if they were just a straight line naval officer. So I think uh, the notion of um, Leadership Challenges uh, has helped us out uh, in figuring out how do you command a non-co-located workforce, and then uh, how do how does industry tackle some of the problems that we're facing? And so uh, I think that one-two punch really provides a force multiplier for NAVC to use in the future. Wow, that's great. I, and I think the... Um Leading a non-co-located workforce is something uh, that the active duty could probably learn something um, from the reserve community about, especially as we get into more of a telework or remote work type of scenario. Uh, sounds like uh, reservists have been doing that for a while, so it could be a good lesson to learn from that. Um, okay, I've got t- two recruiting scenarios. We'll do a, a role-playing game. Uh, first... I'm a active duty EDO lieutenant 
with uh, 10 years of service, I've decided to leave the Navy for whatever reason. I still believe in the mission, just, you know, family reasons, whatever it is. Uh, I've decided I'm, I got to get out of active duty. Um, I, I approach you gentlemen, uh, talking about you, talk to you about re- joining the reserves, potentially becoming an EDO reservist. Yeah, I'll, I'll start off and then uh, I'll uh, hand it over to Admiral Select Dawson. Uh, he might have a different perspective. Um, you know, I'll tell you what, uh, serving in the U.S. Navy, whether it's active duty or as a reservist, uh, really comes down to the same question, uh, your desire to make a difference. Um, what led you to join the Navy? That feeling, that uh, interest, um, that service type of mentality, that um, set of uh, values that precipitated you signing up in the first place is the same set of values um, that we need in the in the Navy Reserve. Um, what we are able to do is help you uh, have the best of both worlds, if you will. You can continue to provide that service, that service that uh, had you sign up in the first place, um, and continue to gain the benefits uh, within the Navy, um, the training, uh, the camaraderie, uh, the leadership experience, um, and, uh, of course, all the benefits, the retirement benefits. You can continue down that path uh, and start your civilian career. Uh, and it is absolutely uh, possible to excel in both careers, make it uh, all the way to uh, Admiral in uh, the Navy Reserve, as well as excel in your civilian career. And uh, what you'll find is that again, this force multiplier in continuing your education and service to your country uh, really comes into play when you're doing both one weekend a month and two weeks a year drilling time and excelling in your civilian career. And the flexibility uh, that uh, allows you to then rebalance your work-work-life balance um, is afforded to you by joining the Navy Reserve. So I I would say uh, continue down that path that you started on. Um, Sign up uh, for the Navy Reserve and uh, be able to gain the benefits from uh, the military experience and still pursue a a civilian career while maintaining that work-life balance that uh, is so important. And for me, I, I kind of, uh, you know, match this scenario. I was active duty for seven years. I was a surface nuke. And, you know, coming to the end of that, I, I wanted to start a family. I didn't want to deploy again. I, I uh, you know, really enjoyed my time in the Navy, but I was ready to move on and do something else. And, and uh, you know, my boss at the time got me connected into the reserves. And I'm so glad that I did that uh, because it allowed me to do what I want to do. Uh, I have not moved in 20 years, staying in the same house I've been in for two decades now. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I still feel like I contribute to the Navy. I'm supporting the mission. I've been able to do some some very fun things. Uh, the flexibility is there to, to use the the skills that I had developed from active duty. And, and you know, when we talk about bringing civilian skills, uh, you know, it's very true. I know that my civilian job helped make me better in my reserve job and vice versa. What I did in the reserves made me better in my civilian job. So it really was a a win-win situation for me. Uh, Still wear the uniform. 
still do a lot of work. Again, that, that work-work-life balance is, is tricky at times, uh, but still have that pride that, that I'm supporting the Navy, supporting the mission, and the camaraderie, the people that I've met have been wonderful. So uh, it's, it's a, a, a great path, somebody coming off of active duty, transferring in. I was not yet an EDO. I, like I said, I was a, was a surface nuke. And it was after about four years of being in the reserves that, that I decided to become an EDO. Uh, but the argument is true. If you're a, a 1440 and you're ready to come off of active duty, uh, it's a great place to continue using that skill that you've worked so long to, to build, uh, to still be relevant, to, to, to still be able to contribute. Okay. Next, next recruiting scenario. Um, you got a, I'm a mid career Navy reservist. I got an engineering background. Um, I'm not an EDO reservist. I'm some other designator. Um, why would you suggest to me, um, to switch designators, become an EDO reservist? Well, so, um, in, in this scenario, um, so you're an engineer and, and, uh, uh in all likelihood, um, you went through that engineering degree pipeline, and as a civilian, uh, you're working as, as an engineer. Um, my advice would be, um, you know, back to that building and leveraging civilian and reserve talent. Um, by joining the ED community and qualifying as an engineering duty officer um, in the reserve side, as well as your civilian career, you get that multiplication factor. Um, and, and again, it, it's, it's amazing how over my career um, problems that uh, I have been given to solve uh, mirror problems that I've had uh, over on the uh, civilian side of the house. Um, so, you know, one thing is uh, across those two communities, a Navy Reserve Engineering Duty Officer community, in civilian engineering community is physics. Physics is the same. Uh, force equals mass times acceleration on both sides of that uh, that uh, uh, line, and uh, the ability to leverage lessons learned and understanding is tremendous. And and then what that does is over on your Navy Reserve side, if you switch over to ED community, um, it, it, your contribution. Uh, is so much richer and so much more valuable to the U.S. Navy because uh, you're you're living in your comfort zone. Um, you're living where you feel uh, problems are second nature. And what does that do to your reserve career? Uh, well, that notion of sustained superior performance starts to creep in because everything that you do turns into be a, a home run type event because – Again, you're in your comfort zone. You're doing similar work on the reserve side that you're doing on the civilian side. That problem-solving skill set is the same, and uh, you're able to accelerate your performance in the reserve community. And I'd like to, to add one thing to that. Uh, so I've, I've worked with and, and recruited in a, a few of those mid-career you know, reservists into the EDO program, uh, particularly from like Civil Engineering Corps or NECC. And somewhere else, and they bring a very different perspective. That's that's refreshing, uh, and, and it and it really seems to matter now as we're redesigning the force, as we're starting to think about very forward missions that we've never done before: battle damage assessment, battle damage repair, expeditionary maintenance. Well, a lot of these officers have trained in that type of environment. 
so while my EDO time has been working at a, at a naval shipyard and, you know, for others, it's going to a warfare center or going to headquarters. Now we actually have people in our program that have done exercises, that have done things forward, that bring a different perspective, a different understanding. Uh, they bring up issues that, that we hadn't thought about. So I love when we're able to get somebody, you know, a lieutenant, uh, uh, typically is what we, we go after, uh, to, to laterally transfer into our community and bring with them their knowledge from, from, the, from the other community really does help us. Okay, so Admiral Wynn, uh, next question's for you um, and for the audience. Uh, if you don't know Admiral Wynn, he's the uh, first Vietnamese U.S. Navy Rear Admiral, and at 16 years old, he fled Vietnam, ultimately seeking political refuge in Oklahoma. Uh, there's an incredible article uh, written on Admiral Wynn uh, on the NAVC website. So I encourage you to go check it out. But uh, Admiral, for you, how does this incredible life story um, and experience influence you personally and professionally today? Great question, uh, Kai. Um, let me just talk a little bit about the thing that helped me. Right? Uh, I believe the challenge in life give us an incredible opportunity to learn, to better oneself, to grow as a human being. And when you lose something that you have, you end up appreciated a lot more. I learned to appreciate the little things in life, uh, my health, my families, my friends. And when we are at our darkest situation, it gives you the opportunity to be kind, and a opportunity to uh, uh, to help others. I deeply appreciate that I went from a person without a country to one where the United States took me in, make me feel welcome and being part of the greatest nation on earth. So it strengthened my resolve and my commitment to serve this country. And while we don't have control over the situation that life will bring to us, uh, bring us, we do have a choice as to how we how we react to it. Kai and Chantal, I, I think that the system keeps dropping in and out. I'm not sure if uh, you capture everything. Should we wait? Uh, yeah, let, let's see. Should we wait for him then? <laughs> what I see is that the challenge in life gives us an incredible opportunity to learn, to better oneself, to grow as a human being. When we lose what we have, we appreciate it a lot more. I learned to appreciate the little things in life, my health, my families, my friends. And when we are at our darkest situation, it gives you the opportunity for to be kind. I deeply appreciate that I went from a person without country to one where the United States took me in, make me feel welcome, and being part of the greatest nation on earth. It allows me to strengthen my resolve and my commitment to serve. And while we don't have control over the situation that life will bring us, we do have a choice as to how we will react to it. Often we are so concerned about our daily job that we forgot what we are here to do. Our job is about developing others, about developing trust and cooperation from your subordinate. It is about inspiring 
others to follow. So you keep this in mind. Trust and cooperation are not something that happens overnight. It allows the people the chance to develop. It is easy for leaders to blame the people for the failures. Reality, it is not people that fail. It is the leadership that fail. Therefore, leader needs to create the right environment so your people can thrive. Leaders need to understand and create environment that people feel safe to acknowledge that when they are when they are making mistakes. And we all want to work in an environment that they can be at their best. Great leaders need empathy and perspective. Uh, being a leader is not about uh, is not about being in charge, but it is about taking care of the people in your charge. Thank you for that, Admiral Wynn. So many good lessons in that for all of us. Last question for you, gentlemen. Do you have any good book recommendations for us? You know, Kyle, that uh, that's a great question, and and I'm going to expand it uh, a little bit in my answer. So. Um, you know, my initial uh, thought in terms of an answer to that question is um, goes to a book that uh, I've used with my wrestling team. So, so one of the things that I do is uh, I've been a high school wrestling coach for a number of years, and uh, I bought a book uh, by Tony Dungy called Playbook for an Uncommon Life. And uh, it's a small uh, pocket-sized book, about 52 chapters. Each chapter is... Uh, two to three pages. And so uh, it's an easy read and it covers the gamut, uh, gamut of uh, leadership scenarios um, and uh, items uh, that uh, just just kind of help you through life. Um, and and there's, a, there's a, a large number of nuggets in there that I use not only with my wrestling team, but uh, with the reserve force, as well as uh, with the um, my civilian job. Uh, so yeah, Tony Dungy playbook for an uncommon life. And, and the one thing that I want to say about this question in general, and, and I got this from one of my training sessions with our athletic director at, at the school. Um, he made a comment once, and, and this has really stuck with me. He said, he said, uh, great leaders are great readers. Um, so I want to translate that a little bit, uh, out of the printed, word into the notion of continuous learning. Um, really, I think what, what that statement says is that great leaders are not stagnant when it comes to learning. And, and I think we've seen that recognition, certainly in the Navy, as, as uh, you know, for our fitness reports in Block 41, we need to put, you know, an emphasis on additional training that we've had over the last year or so. Uh, so this notion of, of leadership uh, should be part and parcel with the notion that uh, um, you are continually learning. And it might be, uh, you know, military tactics, strategies, international politics, what have you, um, engineering uh, technologies that, that relate to your position. But uh, in general, learning across the board is extremely important. So, you know, going back to your question a good book uh, that you recommend. Um, it should also be a training that you've had, experience that you've had, had that, uh, you know, keep this notion of continuous learning alive. Um, so uh, 
that that nugget of great leaders or great readers has really stuck with me. And, and I think uh, that's something that's uh, helped me throughout my entire career. Yeah, uh, the, the book that I uh, just recently finished is The uh, Culture Transformation by Kevin Oates. Uh, really uh, recommend it to the rest of the organization, uh, to the rest of the people to read this. Uh, culture Innovation, I'm sorry. So let, let me rephrase that. Uh, the recent book that I just finished reading is about culture renovation. And the author is Kevin Oates. Kevin talked a lot about uh, what it takes to become the next uh, to um, to continue the traditional of ex- excellence. And a lot of the company that used to be a leader in their field drop out because they they lost that cultural edge. So in this case, he laying out the foundation for what we need to do as an organization has a uh, a plan. Uh, that laying out uh, the, the three steps that allow us to uh, to plan, build, and then the stay, sustain the culture that we need in order to continue to be the leader in uh, in the field that we are in. So really, really highly recommended uh, Cultural Renovation by Kevin Oates. Uh, I'm, I'm reading a lot of other books. A lot of it's like uh, more from a uh, uh, personal uh, continuous learning perspective. I'm a big fan of the uh, Audible audio book, and they have in there a lot of the uh, the great learning series, and I'm, I'm going through a lot of them. Uh, but one of the uh, audio book that I'm listening to right now is uh, is called the uh, the, uh, uh, the Big Picture, right by Sean Carroll. And in there, the author talking about the uh, he's he's a great intellectual discussing about what make up the universe from atoms all the way through the different universe and things like that, discussing about how things are related uh, from from the subatomic particle structure all the way to the way that we think. Uh, I'm part. I'm halfway through the books and uh, really enjoying listening to uh, ideas such as that. Uh, and I, as I mentioned, the uh, the great learning series in Audible, you have uh, other things that uh, of interest from time to time. I uh, re-listening to the history of the United States, uh, listening to like uh, things about quantum physics, the theory of everything. That's one of my other uh, favorite subject, uh, history in general. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining me today on the Wardroom Podcast. Uh, I appreciate the, the honest and frank conversation. Appreciate your leadership uh, in the reserve community as you help reorganize the Navy Reserve Fighting Force in preparation for battle damage repair or wartime scenarios uh, for NAVC. And I appreciate you setting light on the community for the active duty community and and. Uh, helping us focus on ways to which we can incorporate you on the team um, so that when we need you, we'll all be ready to use you. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you for joining us in the wardroom. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Lieutenant Chantel Lavender. If you have questions for our guests, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at thewardroompodcast at gmail.com or tweet or follow us on Twitter at the Wardroom Podcast.